Last week sometime I was reading the BBC News on the internet and I came across a video of this old man who was walking along a road in Kiev. Uh, his, his back was all hunched up and he was leaning very heavily on a stick and then suddenly he heard something and he, he tried to look over his left shoulder and before his eyes could even lock onto what, what he'd heard, this missile just came streaking past and the road ahead of him just erupted into a fireball. I mean, his hat was knocked askew, the lens of the camera that was taking the photo, some security camera was shaking. Um, there was just debris flying up into the air. And, and fortunately, this old guy wasn't harmed. But that's not to say that this missile strike didn't have an effect on him, not at all. I mean, he swiveled around on his, on his left heel and, and then he just started staggering in the opposite direction as fast as his legs and his sort of tight hamstrings would allow. Two weeks ago, Mark Rosa uh, was talking about the power of the cross. And the cross just came smashing into history 2,000 years ago. And the radiating shock waves from that have been shaking humankind to its foundations ever since. Now, just as that old Ukrainian man uh, responded to the missile strike, so we need to respond to the explosive power of the cross. And to be frank, we would be fools if we didn't. But, but how should we respond? And what we're going to do today is we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Peter, like Mark did, has just been describing in the first 12 verses of the chapter the power of the cross. And yes, he's been using different words to the words that Mark used, but the concepts are the same. And then in verse 13, he comes to this word, therefore. And that should always grab our attention. Therefore, he's about to draw a conclusion. He's about to make an inference. And the conclusion is that we need to respond. Therefore, our response needs to be multidimensional. And so this is where we're going to be heading today. Our response should be hopeful. It has to do with our mindset, the way we think. Our response should be holy. And this has to do obviously with our conduct. And then thirdly, our response needs to be reverent. And this has to do with the work that God has given us to do in life for His honor and for His glory. So let's read 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. I'm going to pray just asking Father God that as we come to your scriptures this morning that you would teach us. We pray that that Jesus through the Holy Spirit would be teaching us that that it you would cause our hearts to burn as we see what we see in scripture today and we ask that it would have a strong impact on our lives. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, 
You shall be holy, this is God speaking, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what, what Mark was talking about two weeks ago. Like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word, and, and what a wonderful word it is to us. So let's start talking about hope. Our main response to the cross is that we need to be people of hope. We need to be hopeful. And this is the idea of eternity, the hope of eternity, shaping our mindset today. And you can find it there in verse 13. Just look at verse 13. Notice two things, that there is a command there. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. And then secondly, the way we follow the command is with a particular kind of mindset. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So there's the mindset. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at those two things, the command and the mindset. Let's take the command. Set your hope fully. But on what? What are we to set our hope on? What is, if you like, the substance of your hope? Is it the ease that money brings and success in life? Is it good health? Is that what you're hoping for? Is it a world without war? Are you hoping that the war in the Ukraine won't spread from there to other parts of Europe? Are you hoping that it won't have an impact on us here in Zimbabwe? Are you hoping that you'll get to retire somewhere near to your children and your grandchildren? Folks, if these are your ultimate hope, if these are the hopes that you are pinning everything on, then you're going to be disappointed. And I hope that these are not the hopes that you are hoping for, because valid though these hopes are, there's nothing wrong with hoping for these particular things. They aren't guaranteed. In fact, most hopes in this world are associated with risk. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I win the lottery. But folks, there is one hope that is certain. What is it? What is that hope? That hope which doesn't have any risk associated with it. Um, Paul talks about it earlier on in the chapter as a living hope. It's not a, it's not a dead hope. And here it is. It is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. What's he talking about? Folks, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns for the second time. As a Christian, we hope that when we die or Christ returns, whichever one comes first, we will be raised immortal. No longer to die, no longer to be subject to accidents, no longer to be subject to ill health. We'll be raised immortal so that we can spend eternity with God right there 
in His presence. That's the way we were created to be, wasn't it? To be in His presence, to be in a close, personal, intimate relationship with you. And folks, this is the only sure hope. This is the only hope that doesn't have a risk attached to it because it is a hope based on the promises of a dependable God. It's the only hope, folks, that is not going to turn to ashes in your hands. Now, let's go back to the command. Set your hope fully. Folks, what we need to recognize today is that we live in a world of competing hopes. And unless your hope is set fully on the one and only living hope, you're going to get sideswiped in life repeatedly. You're going to get unbalanced. You're going to get knocked off course constantly in life. So the question is, and now we're coming to the mindset, how do we set your hope on one thing rather than on something else? And this is where we need to develop this correct mindset. And Peter uses two very clear pictures here. The first picture in verse 13 there is of a person preparing to run. So he says, prepare your minds for action. Literally, in the Greek, gird up the loins of your mind. So what, he's, what, what, what would have conjured up in the minds of the people in the day, they used to wear sort of like a shirt that was very long. It would hang right down to the ground so that you were cool and comfortable in the hot conditions of, of, the, of where they lived. But, you know, if you needed to run, then you had to gather up that shirt and tuck it into your belt so that you wouldn't get entangled in it. So what does this mean? Well, if I think of Gail, there's nothing wrong with her wearing a long evening dress. In fact, she looks great in a long evening dress. But if she needs to run, if the time comes for running, she's got to tuck that dress away. And so this speaks to me of getting our hopes in order. Many of our hopes are legitimate, but we need to order them below the hope of eternity. Otherwise, those hopes are going to trip, trip us up. So it's not that we don't hope, but we make sure that our hopes are in the right order. And if some of our hopes do turn to ashes in our hands, then we still have that overriding hope that gives us strength and stability in life. Then the second picture is of a sober person rather than a drunk one. He says, you should be sober-minded. What's Paul getting at here? Well, a drunk person is not self-controlled because he's allowed alcohol to control him. He's yielded the control of his life to alcohol. And a sober person, if you contrast a sober person with a drunk person, a sober person is not allowing anything dangerous to control him. What's that got to do with hope? Well, this is very important. There is a direct link between what you are putting your hope in and the things that control you. So, for example, if your overriding hope is for an easy life, for health and for wealth, nothing ever going wrong, that things are okay in life when everything's going well, when relationships are going well, when people are healthy, when you have enough money. If you haven't tucked that hope away into its proper perspective, then something other than God is going to start controlling you when those hopes don't deliver. 
And so maybe you start getting controlled by anxiety over threats to your investments. Or maybe you start to have just like a greed for more and more. Or maybe it's fear, fear that something terrible is going to happen to your wife or to your children, that there might be a car accident, that you might get cancer. Can you see that when these hopes are not in their right perspective, they start to produce things that can control us. And we need to be very careful of that because Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, he said, I will not be mastered by anything. It's a good thing just to do a little bit of an audit to see what is mastering you at the moment. Is it fear? Maybe because you'd hoped that no one would ever get sick in your family. But now there's something starting to happen to your spouse and you're not too sure what it is and the doctors are exploring. Or, or maybe it's bitterness. You had hoped that your business partner would treat you with integrity, but they haven't. And that hope has been dashed and now you're starting to feel bitterness. Or, or maybe you had hoped that, that, that your, your loved ones wouldn't get hurt and you've lost a loved one. And now you're feeling depressed um, and that has started to control you. So what do we do when that starts to happen? We just need to make sure that we're being mastered by God and His Holy Spirit. And Peter's point here is that if you focus on the hope of heaven in the future, it's actually going to release power to change the present. And that's why he says, prepare your minds for action by tucking your hopes into order of priority. Get your hopes in order. Get your mind focused on the finish line. Because if you can focus your mind on something in the future, it's going to have an impact on your today. And you're going to be a lot more stable and steady in your life today because of the hope of something in the future. And, you know, I often think of Chad Leclerc. I was very um, moved in some ways to hear him talking years ago about how he had to make many sacrifices when he was just a schoolboy, just a young guy. A lot of his mates would be going out on a Friday night to go and party, but he had to make sure that he was in bed early and um, so, that he, so that he could get up early for his training. He had to watch his diet. And the interviewer said, how did, you, how did you cope with all of that? And he said, well, it was the hope of standing on the winner's podium. Can you see, what, see how that future hope shapes the present? And so our first response, we're looking at our responses to the power of the cross. Our first response is one of hope. We use the hope of eternity to shape our mindset. The second response should be that we have a very strong desire to be holy. Look at verse 14. And Peter does a significant thing here at the start of this verse. He introduces a family theme. In some, in some translations it has to do with the father, you have a father. Or in verse 14 it says, as obedient children. Folks, when I think of this, I think of the fact that now I'm a child of God. God is my dad. And that implies that I carry God's family likeness. Before I was adopted into God's family, I was an enemy of God. I used to be owned by sin. But now I am a child of God. The incredible power that was released on the cross 
has now been released in my own life because I've been born again. I've been recreated in the image of God. And that family likeness is with me now. And this change of status means that I don't need to be controlled by sinful passions any longer. And so Peter writes here, do not be conformed. I was reflecting on that, on that phrase, do not be conformed. And it's significant that it's in the passive. In other words, we are being conformed by something else. And we need to prevent that from happening. Do not be conformed. In other words, those evil passions, if we allow them, can shape us. They can, they can force us into a mold. And this means that before you were born again, you allowed those evil desires to force you into a mold. But you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to give in to evil desires because they no longer have any power over you because the power of the cross that Mark was talking about has been released into your life. Do not be conformed to your evil desires. You don't need to be anymore. You're no longer owned by sin. You are now a child of God. Folks, if you yield control to evil desires, that goes with your former state as an enemy of God. But in verse 15, it says, Now you're able to display the family likeness, which is holiness. But he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Folks, holiness in this context, what does it mean? Well, it means living in a way that pleases God and glorifies Him. The way that He's laid out for us in His Word, in the Scriptures. And Peter reminds us here that you were called by God. Isn't that amazing that God chose Don to be a member of his family before the creation of the world? He chose Don. It's such an honor. It's such a privilege. He chose me. And I just, when I think of that, I just want to make a return. Not because I need to earn anything now, but I do it as a response to the, the power that's been released in my life through the power of the cross. And so we need to honor God in our behavior. We need to bring credit to the family name. When Catherine and Matthew were younger and they used to go and spend time with friends and we heard that they had behaved well in our absence, we were just delighted because they carry, Catherine and Matthew, they carry the Ray family name and, and we want our name to stand for integrity for good manners, for honesty, and so on. And in the same way, you carry the name of God, the family name. And since God is holy, and since He is His Father, you too, He is our Father, you too should be holy. Just a question. Just do a little bit of an audit, I think, on what your reputation is like at the moment. Maybe in your business life. Are you trustworthy and dependable in your family life? Um, can your customers see that you attach value to honesty and offering a good service or a good product? Because it's so clear in Zimbabwe today that many people are not valuing offering a good service, offering a good product over the, the value of those things. 
and um, and it's it's sad. So we we need to make sure that people can see that we are people of honesty and integrity, and that the service and the product that we're offering is of good value. Folks, don't set your hope on things that are going to last just a few decades at best. Set your hope on the grace that is to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And allow that future perspective to inspire you to holy living because we are to be hopeful. That's the first response and we are to be holy. Let's turn now to the last response in verse 17 where Paul gives another command and this is about reverence. It's about respect for God in some translations say fear of God, but that this is the idea of respect, shaping the way you work, the things that you do. So it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Or um, I like the NIV translation that says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And, and Peter goes on to give three reasons for this command. Why should we live our lives here with reverence and respect for God. Well, the first one is that we have an impartial dad. It says here, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. We have a dad, folks, who is just utterly impartial and fair. And we're told in the Bible that when Christ returns, he is gonna judge our work. Listen to this. We're not going to be judged on the basis of whether we spend an eternity with God or not, but our work will be judged to determine what sort of a reward we're going to get in heaven for the way in which we lived on earth. So listen to this. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. It'll be up on your screen. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed for what it is. For the day when Christ returns will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. We don't want to do work that is going to end up burning up in the flames so that we get into heaven smelling of smoke. No, we want to be able to carry through with work that isn't perished by fire. It says here, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, the foundation of Christ, his values, the, the kind of person that he is, the kind of life he wants us to be, if, that, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss although he himself will be saved. Remember that. He will be saved, but he will suffer loss. Won't receive the same reward in eternity. So, a first reason for the command is that our work will be tested and we have an impartial father. He's not going to favor one person over another and we need to allow that to, to stir up respect in our hearts. Let, let's work for things that are going to count for eternity. That doesn't mean you have to be, work like me as a pastor. No. I mean, you can allow that foundation of Christ to permeate every aspect of your business, whatever it is, whether you're a businessman or you're a mother, um, whatever you are in life. So we have an impartial dad. We're talking about the, the reasons why we need to be reverent towards God. The second one 
is this world is not your home. Peter describes our time in earth as an exile. Don't live as though this earth is your ultimate home. Don't be looking for heaven on earth because you're not going to find it. There's, this, there's this, um, this, this Christian musician from years ago, Randy Alcorn, he, a bit of a strange name, but there we have it. Randy Alcorn, he sang this song and the words go, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And that is so true. This world is not your home. If things are rough and tough here, remind yourself, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm building with gold, silver and precious stones and I will receive my reward in heaven. And that weight of glory will far outweigh any weight of suffering or hardship that I experience in this life. Remember, we're talking about the reasons why we need to be respectful of God. The third reason is that your redemption is unique. First of all, because of what you were redeemed from. And second of all, because of the price that was paid. Let's look at the first, what you're redeemed from. To ransom somebody means to free him from something bad by paying a penalty. And at the time, obviously, slaves could be ransomed. They were given their freedom through the payment of a fee. And of course, the greater the price paid, the more grateful the slave was and the sweeter his freedom tasted. Just think for a moment of the price that was paid for your ransom. Think of the suffering that Christ went through. Doesn't that make your salvation so much more amazing and so much sweeter? But let's look at what we've been redeemed from. It says here that we were enslaved, you'll see it on the screen, by the empty way of life handed down to us from our forefathers. At birth, every one of us became the recipient of a fallen sinful nature until we were born again by God. It was handed down to us by our forefathers because of Adam's original rebellion against God. And life without God, this is so true, is empty and futile. Here's an example. This eulogy was written by a close acquaintance of John Paul Getty, one of the richest men in the world. And incidentally, his grandson was kidnapped at the age of 16 for a number of years and his grandfather refused to pay the ransom money and they even cut off this young lad's ear and sent it to him in the post this is the kind of man that john paul getty was he was so tied up in his earthly wealth he, his hope was so firmly grounded in that that he ended up doing unspeakable things like that and so this eulogy was written by a close acquaintance of his uh, it's so sad. Just think of what we've been redeemed from. I am one of the few people who can reveal the incredible facts about the eight, late unlamented multi-billionaire. He was a lecher, a miser, a womanizer whose private life was often bizarre beyond belief. He never conquered his fear of death and he tried in vain to stay the ravages of time by frequent facelifts. He was secretly afraid that anyone who approached him was trying to muscle in on his millions. He lacked affection, yet he yearned for love. Throughout his adult life, love eluded him. The gloomy, pathetic, remote Getty was totally unlovable. 
I doubt if he could have counted five faithful friends, and I question whether anyone anywhere shed a tear of genuine grief when last month, amongst his earthly tappings, he quietly closed his chronicle of wasted time. That's an extreme example. But nevertheless, it gives us a taste of the futile life that we've been handed unless we avail ourselves of the power of the cross. So our redemption is unique because of what we've been redeemed from. But it's also unique, and I alluded to this early, because of the price that was paid. You know, it says there, our redemption was not paid for with perishable things like silver or gold. It was bought with blood. And Christ knew before the dawn of time that he would have to die for your sake. It says there in verse 20, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Just think of the price that was paid from your redemption. Just think of the empty way of life from which you have been now set free. It's mind-boggling. Doesn't that make you want to make a return? Not to try and earn a place in heaven, but rather just to say, ah, oh, because God has loved me so much, I want that love to outwork in my life and to affect everything that I do, whether it's at work, whether it's at play. And so just in conclusion today, just think of those three things that need to be characteristics of your life. Hope. What are you hoping in? Have a quick look at um, what is controlling you because maybe that will indicate to you that you have put your hope in the wrong things. Do an analysis of that. Do a, a quick audit. What, what, what is controlling me? And what does that tell me about my hopes? And how will this change if I set my hope on the redemption that is going to come to me when Jesus Christ is revealed, a resurrection body, spending eternity with God, getting to enjoy a reward in heaven. And then over and above that hope, holiness. Folks, now that you're a child of God, you need to show the family likeness and the explosive power of the cross has been released in your own life so that you can be holy. This is the only way you're going to overcome those things that beset you, those things that derail you in life. Holiness. Let's be holy people. Reflect on that. And then last of all, I just need to check my notes because I've had a blank. Reverent. <laughs> let's, be, let's be reverent in our, in our work, in everything that we do. Let's allow the fact that we've been redeemed from this empty way of life by the price of Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross. Let's allow that to shape everything that we do. Um, let's be respectful of God and what He's done and allow that to, to, to shape us to live a life which will be rewarded in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, once again, I, I ask that you would help every person who's heard this message to go away and, and look at 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Um, 
to reflect on it, to do a bit of an audit. Um, because, Lord, we need to spend time thinking about how amazing the cross is and how powerful an effect it can have on our lives if only we will respond to it. And so I just want to stand here, as I often do, as a representative of the Harvest family and, and just say, Father, we want to be shaped by the cross. We want to respond to the cross in a way that we've been talking about today. Please help us to do that. And thank you that you have released your power into our lives to make it a reality. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just always appreciate uh, anyone who's, who's signed in to, the, to, to these YouTube videos and, and watch them. We, we trust that God will truly minister to you um, during this time. Uh, thank you for joining us and goodbye for now.